Welcome to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McLoon. You can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. Today, we truly have a celebrity. I have now interviewed 30 authors, and I can say this is the first time we have a celebrity. We have the one and only Mike Duncan to discuss his brand new, now blockbuster and bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list, Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette and the Age of Revolution, published by Public Affairs Publishing. Welcome, Mr. Duncan. Thank you very much for having me. Mr. Duncan is one of the world's most successful podcasters, and I'm not intimidated in the least little bit. Okay, maybe a little (laughs) bit. All right, a little bit. His wonderful podcast series on the history of Rome is not only a landmark in podcasting, but also in my very own family. My three boys loved listening to this series while growing up. He has another ongoing series called Revolutions, exploring the great political revolutions that have driven the course of modern history. Mr. Duncan is the author of another New York Times bestselling book, The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic. So we are so excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) All right, let's begin at this momentous life of the Marquis de Lafayette. He was born with the moniker of Marie, Joseph, Paul, Yves, Roche, Gilbert, du Motier, born September 6, 1757, to become the Marquis de Lafayette of American Revolutionary fame, a couple of French revolutions fame. Let's start at the very beginning. What kind of world was the Marquis de Lafayette born into, and how did this shape the man that he was going to become? Okay, if you're going to be who he is, who's the Marquis de Lafayette, and he's born in 1757, that means that you are entering a world of ancien regime France. Right. This is sort of if you, if you can picture in your mind, this is the world of Marie Antoinette, the highest of the high sort of French nobility is the world that Lafayette is ultimately going to be entering where he's born, however, is as a sort of a rustic noble out in the provinces. And he comes from an ancient lineage of French nobles. He had an ancestor who fought with Joan of Arc. He had an ancestor who participated in one of the crusades. He's coming from like 800 years of basically soldiers and knights and nobles who have gone off to serve the the various kings of France over the centuries. And now he is entering this world. But you're talking about the mid to late 18th century. So this sort of ancient medieval world of the kingdom of France is now running directly into one of the great intellectual currents of Western civilization and world history, which is the Enlightenment, where there's a scientific revolution that's happening. There's philosophical revolutions that are happening. There's new ideas that are current among the intellectual, the educated elite. These two things are going to run into each other in the person of Lafayette, where he is simultaneously comes from ancient noble privilege, but is also going to be laced with all of these new and very radical and very current ideas that are going to ultimately, when he becomes like a 20-year-old, fuels the American Revolution, the French Revolution, uh, Spanish-American independence once that gets going. Really, there's there's a whole sort of global revolution that happens to the Atlantic world that he's going to be right in the middle of because he had wealth, he had position, but he was also going to be driven by these somewhat radical liberal ideals. You give a great explanation sort of of the ferment that is beginning to roil in French society when he's born. And you talk about the sword, mm-hmm. the sword nobility, and I believe it's the robe nobility. Right. And what was that? The sword nobles are, like I said, the old nobility of France. These are the, when you think about sort of the medieval aristocracy, the people who become marquises and dukes and vicomtes, and then ultimately like the kings and queens are doing so because they're this like warrior aristocracy. That's sort of what, that's the system, the feudal system that's running Europe all through the Middle Ages is this like warrior aristocracy. But as we get into the 16th century, the 17th century, the 18th century, uh, the kings of France are having a great deal of difficulty raising money for themselves because they have exempted this warrior aristocracy from being taxed. So the kings of France are constantly 
and chronically short of cash. And one of the ways that they realize they can make money is if somebody who's not a noble, like some family who has made a bunch of money in banking or in uh, in selling salted fish or in, in this new world of like Atlantic trade, a lot of which is like slavery. Unfortunately, you have people who are making a killing in the slave trade. These people have tons of money and the kings of France say, hey, we will we will make you a noble. We will allow you into this uh, into this aristocracy if you give us a huge load of money. And so you have these families who were commoners beginning to buy their way into the aristocracy. So now we have a tension once you get to the middle of the 1700s, sort of as we lead up to the French Revolution of these rising robe nobles who really were sort of uh, the, the prosperous merchants and the wealthy people in France who are now nobles, as opposed to people who were coming out of it like Lafayette, where his claim to fame, his sort of ticket into the aristocracy is, yes, that he has land, but also that he can say, 700 years ago, I had an ancestor who fought with Joan of Arc. And there's a great deal of tension actually inside the aristocracy between these two groups. And then the robe nobles are really going to be a force as they protect and try to advance their own position as sort of a rising class in France. That is going to be one of the breakdown points that leads directly to the French Revolution. He has a tragedy very early in his life. Uh, That also affects him greatly too. So his dad died when he was two. He never really met his father. Dad dies. He becomes the Marquis de Lafayette when he's two years old. He's still just like running around in diapers, has never met his father, who dies at the Battle of Minden in 1759, which is part of the Seven Years' War. It's his mom then who dies when he's 11 or 12. He enters adolescence as an orphan. He never knew his father and his mother, whom he loved a great deal and whom loved him a great deal. He was her only son. He was their only child. When she dies, he's, yeah, left a bit unmoored in the world and is uh, is handed off to minders as opposed to anybody who's really going to give him a great deal of like love and affection, uh, which he's kind of lost at that point. And it is sad. I mean, he you know, people have pointed out Lafayette does read a bit like a young adult novel. Uh, protagonist, right? Where a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, kids who are starring in young adult novels uh, are the way they are because their parents have died. And this happens to Lafayette too. When she dies, he becomes one of the wealthiest aristocrats in France, probably in Europe, if not the world at that point. So he is subject to a lot of political wins and a lot of uh, ambition by a lot of different people. Yeah, because he was he was their only son. Uh, He was the only son of his parents, the only child of his parents that lived. And also, he's the only living male because it's a very patriarchal society, the only living male of a couple of different branches of both his mother's side and father's side. So when people start to die, like his dad, like his mom, like his grandfather, who dies literally a couple of weeks after his mom dies, he inherits fortunes that do make him, I don't, you know, there's no like Forbes 500 list that exists sure. in Ancien Regime France. But he was probably in the top 10. Right. In terms of how much he 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 personally inherited. And that made him, you know, at the age of 12, 13 years old, an incredibly eligible bachelor. All the other really rich and powerful families in France are now looking at this kid being like, wow, we've got ourselves a super rich 13 year old orphan. Uh, I would really like to marry my daughter to this guy. And that's how he winds up marrying into the Noai family, who are probably second only to the royal family in France in terms of their their wealth standing and position. The Noir are an incredibly important family. And Lafayette, as this sort of orphan, rustic sword noble, is now going to marry his way into the inner circle of French power. And this does bring him directly into contact with the royal family. He goes to school with the Comte d'Artois, who is uh, you know one of the royal princes, who will ultimately himself be King Charles X of France, the, who will be Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette before they are even king and queen. These are just sort of like the teenagers that he is uh, that he's hanging around with because they were all born about the same time. But it, this isn't an easy transition for him. And you write about his kind of his gangliness, his awkwardness. He does not have the social graces. He still has kind of the rustic peasant air about him. And he's not real successful on this social scene at this time. Yeah. Lafayette had a very awkward adolescence, just like brass tacks of growing up. You know, he grew to be kind of a taller guy. And when you go from being a kid to growing into like a larger physical frame, like your body, you are very clumsy during this period. And he was not a particularly gifted 
writer when he was 14, 15 years old. He wasn't a particularly gifted dancer. And so as he's moving around, he's he's like quite literally like a kind of a clumsy and awkward person. And then, yeah, like you said, he grew up in the provinces. He grew up out on his estates in Chavignac, which is down in Auvergne. And now he's entering literally the palace at Versailles. He's going to school in Versailles with some of the fanciest aristocrats. You know, I don't know if there's a better way of putting it than that. These are the fanciest aristocrats in the world who all of the kids that he's hanging out with grew up in that world. So they know how to move. They know how to talk. They knew what references to make. They know how to speak. They know when to laugh. They know when to be quiet. And Lafayette just wasn't really born and raised into that same world. So as he tries to enter the rarefied air of the young social set, these young, rich, aristocratic teenagers, he doesn't really fit in with them. And right away, they realize he doesn't fit in with them and he realizes he doesn't fit in with them. And this creates sort of a, you know, a breakdown in his mind about like, what, what am I trying to do in the world? Like, where's my place? Where am I going to fit in? And he spends a couple of years really trying to figure out where he's going to fit in. And ultimately, that's going to lead him to deciding that where he fits in is like with a bunch of Protestant British rebels, like on the other side of the world. That is a great point in your book of how this guy, this friend noble leaps to the cause. In one way, it seems like a big adventure for him and a big Mm -hmm. adventure for his friends. And this is how a young man's going to go and make his mark in the world. But it's still, it's a huge leap, even for a young teenage male. He's married by this time. He gets married at the age of 14. Mm-hmm. He has, he joins the army. I believe the Black Musketeers at Metz, mm-hmm. he joins them. But he has this burning desire to go make his mark in this revolution, in this war that is happening in America. What propelled him to do that? Ultimately, well, a, a bit, a good chunk of it we've already set up because okay. he's not he's not fitting in socially. He, he comes from an ancient line of sword nobles, which he was raised being told stories of the great deeds of his ancestors, and so he has it in his head that he wants to go perform similarly valorous deeds on the battlefield. You know, like win a great battle for France, do something heroic as a soldier in the army, and so his notion is that he might not fit in socially with these nobles at Versailles, but at least I can use my connections to be commissioned as an officer in the French army and then go forth and be like a professional soldier. And that will be where I fit in. And I think that really from the very beginning, once he once he reali- once he gets into the soldier's life, he's much more comfortable in the army and in, you know, barracks and in tents and on the parade and, and on the battlefield than he is at the palace at Versailles. But the problem is that there is, you know, the the kingdom of France at this time, every single aspect of France from taxation to how they run their budgets to the military, to the Navy, all of it is in desperate need of reform. And when a reform movement hits the French army, they identify Lafayette as somebody who doesn't fit in with a modern conception of the French army, which ought to be run by talented, experienced officers who have a proven ability to lead troops in battle, right? Because the French have just gotten their teeth kicked in by the British in the Seven Years' War, and they're trying to figure out how can we not have this happen again? And you take this, uh, you know, a, a young aristocratic teenager who's got no experience in battle. He's been given a captaincy only because of his social and political connections, and he gets struck from the roles. He gets he gets put on the reserve list in the French army, and now all of a sudden he's sitting there. He's eighteen years old. He doesn't have a future in the army. He doesn't have a future at court. He feels very trapped on all sides. But there is this war that has broken out over in the Americas, where these British colonialists have gone into revolt against basically London, against their crown and parliament. And Lafayette sees this. Honestly, many French officers see the war in America as an opportunity to go over and do something that will make them great, that will make them known, where he can still sort of achieve his dreams of making a mark on the world, which is now being closed off on all sides. The other point, as you brought up, is Lafayette is very much fueled by a sort of personal ambition, right? But there was something else that was driving him. He he was from a very young age, and I don't know like where exactly this comes from, if it's just his DNA or his character, whatever sort of, sort of uh, abstract notion of character exists out there. He's also idealistic. 
And so when he sees the Americans going into revolt for liberty, for freedom, for independence, sort of those idealistic notions, he's really motivated now to go over and do this because I think both things drove him simultaneously. He wasn't just a soldier of fortune, a mercenary going over there to, to make money fighting in a war or to become famous as a soldier. He also was driven by these idealistic things that he thought the Americans represented. The one thing that is very interesting I found about Lafayette's life is he is truly a revolutionary in committed to these ideals of liberty and equality. Yet at the same time, he's also very loyal to the authority figures in his life, whether it was George Washington, whether it was the royal family, the Bourbons. I, he tried to be loyal to the next two, to Charles X and to Louis Philippe. I don't know if his issues with Bonaparte, but he <laughs> remained, <laughs> he had a few issues there, but he, in revolutionary fever, he was always very loyal and almost of a conservative nature to those who were in authority. He seemed to really respect authority while being a revolutionary. And I just thought that was a very interesting dichotomy of his personality. And I, like you, I'm very interested where he came up with this equality of liberty. Uh, you attributed maybe some of it to the Freemasonry, mm-hmm. maybe just currents that are going around in Europe at at the time, but he really is a champion of the underdog in many ways throughout his life. Yeah. I mean, he, it's not the case, for example, that Lafayette was just some uh, fancy young French aristocrat who came to America and now suddenly learned about all of these things, liberty, equality, you know, these enlightenment ideals. He goes to America having imbibed a lot of this stuff already. It was in the intellectual atmosphere of Paris and Versailles at the time. You know, he gets it from Abbe Renal, like you said, I'm, he, this is being passed around in Freemasonic units, which is, you know, very similar to what's going on in the United States. But to your point, like, as he comes over and he has these ideals, like, who is he going to give his loyalty to? And who is he not going to give his loyalty to? When is it okay to go into revolt against something? And when is it not okay to go into revolt against something? And he does have notions about what it, what would make for a good and just world. He sees George Washington, at least initially, as somebody who represents the values that he would like to see playing out in the world, put into practice in the world. Republicanism, a sort of a, a self-abnegation when it comes to the pursuit of power, right? That you shouldn't just be some greedy, right. power-hungry. This is why he hates Bonaparte, but loves Washington, Right. Because Lafayette does have this idea that you should, as as a good, virtuous citizen in a sort of in a classically Republican mode, you should be not trying to just acquire power. If you wield power, you should hold it temporarily and then hand it off to the next person, as he sees George Washington do. And then you look at somebody like Bonaparte, who is just going to be like very much a nakedly grasping, power hungry kind of person. Right. Um, this is why Lafayette likes one and doesn't like the other. And he keeps, try- as you said, he keeps trying to be loyal to the Bourbons and keep saying like the crown itself is legitimate if it's surrounded by the kind of Republican institutions, a legislature and a declaration of rights. Right. But if they don't embrace those things, he is willing to work to undermine Louis the 18th. He works to undermine Charles the 10th because he sees them not being willing as the executive authority in the state to accept things like bills of rights and legislatures and elections, which he thinks are key components to making a legitimate polity. Talk to us a little bit about his relationship with George Washington, because that was the defining relationship of his life in Mm -hmm. many ways. I think from an emotional, a revolutionary, a understanding of a perfect society was in many ways embodied in the ideals of George Washington. When Lafayette studies like sort of the historiography of Lafayette, which I've read tons and tons and tons about this, right? Very early, it was like, well, this is pretty obvious. Lafayette lost his dad when he was two. He never really had a father figure. The one time that he almost had a father figure was his father-in-law, his wife's father, whom they did not wind up getting along with each other. So Lafayette is still as a teenager sort of in search of something like a father figure. And then he meets George Washington and George Washington becomes that father figure. I think Lafayette latches on 
to this. Now, as studies in Lafayette moved through like the 20th century, people started to move away from that and be like, well, this is this is just psychology, you know, like this is it's just like weird Freudian stuff that we shouldn't actually be reading into this relationship. But then I went back through everything and read it again. And I'm kind of back to the position of like, the guy was kind of in need of a father figure. And he was looking for that, some kind of patriarch that he could look up to. And he found it in George Washington. And Washington reciprocated those feelings. And I do think that that's the the genesis point of Washington being the ideal figure in Lafayette's life, all the way, you know, long past Washington being dead. Lafayette is still asking himself the question, well, like in this situation, what would George Washington do? And then I will try to do that. So I think that there is something to that psychological uh, grasping for a father. Of course, all of this winds up running into sort of all the defects of character that Washington has that Lafayette is not seeing. So he maintains a very idealized version of George Washington. And even Lafayette is somebody who knows sort of George Washington's faults, but still now is so emo- has such an, a, a positive emotional relationship with Washington that the, the defects that Washington exhibits are things that he hopes to be able to reform as opposed to like, this is, you know, I should break with my father because over, for example, slavery, which Lafayette is an abolitionist and George Washington is a slave owner. Right. It it seems like that relationship was also fueled by George Washington allowed Lafayette to be Lafayette. Yeah. This wild kind of gregarious, friendly, outgoing personality. And he seemed to, from what you write, have a genuine appreciation for Lafayette to be Lafayette because Lafayette was actually very successful during the American Revolution. So Lafayette was a good bet for him. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's it's very true because the the other side of this equation, you know, like Lafayette wanting a father figure, you know, you can go over to George Washington and say, well, George Washington didn't have any sons of his own. You know, maybe he was looking for a son in the way that Lafayette was looking for a father. But then the thing is, then you go, then you go take this all from Washington's perspective. Washington was surrounded by young men who wanted father sure. figures. You know, Alexander Hamilton's like right there. And, but it's not like Washington was Hamilton's father. So there is something about Lafayette and people remark on it. People talked about it at the time. Like Lafayette had a way of breaking through George Washington's sort of emotional and physical reserve that were legendary, even inside, you know, there's stories about like, you know, they would, uh, one guy got dared to go slap Washington on the back and be like, Hey, what's up general. And Washington (laughs) gave him this death stare because you are not supposed to treat Washington like this. Washington is incredibly proper about the way he presents himself. He's very dedicated to his self image. Meanwhile, Lafayette, once they start a relationship, you know, they find out that France has joined the war and Lafayette's like jumping into his arms and kissing him on both cheeks. Kiss him on the cheek. Washington's like, yeah, all right. You know, you can get away with this. Nobody else could. So there was something special in the relationship. And I do think that as you know, you remarked on this earlier, and I think it's a good point that Lafayette was very loyal to George Washington right from the very beginning. And Washington did have a soft spot for people that were really loyal to him personally, right? Which is not a bad thing. Like if somebody's loyal to you, you have a tendency to reciprocate that a little bit more. And Lafayette did a lot very early when they first met to say, I'm with you. I'm with George Washington as much as I'm with the Continental Army. And then, yeah, once Washington starts trusting him, leading troops in battle, there's a a special mission. I need somebody who I can trust to handle it. Lafayette does prove himself over and over again, somebody who's capable of performing those tasks. So just on a strictly like sort of professional military level, Washington fit, or excuse me, Lafayette fit right in with sort of the military family that Washington was trying to build. The French actually saved our backsides in the American Revolution. We cannot mince words on that. (laughs) There is, without the French, uh, things would have been very differently. But there's one point that you bring up. I'm a retired military officer that I did not know where the decision for the civilian control of the military came from. And it was at the point whether the troops, Rochambeau's troops, would go directly under Washington or versus through Congress. And Mm -hmm. it was George Washington at that moment who decided, no, we do not need a dictatorship. We Mm -hmm. need to maintain civilian control of the military. And it was over the question of French troops and how French troops were going to support the, the war. That's an amazing thing. And it is true to this day. We saw this 
three weeks ago in the fall of Kabul. So civilian politicians run the military. And it was from that moment, and it was actually the French that allowed us to make that decision. So that's a really incredible moment. And it's an important point in your book. Yeah. And this is Washington, right? And well on this a little bit, because when French sent the expedition under Rochambeau, kind of the orders that Rochambeau had been handed was you report to George Washington. It didn't say anything about the Second Continental Congress. Now, they did this because they wanted they, they knew that in order to cement the alliance for sort of political and for social reasons, which the French are very much understand sort of like the protocol and etiquette of, of a vast social system, like of egos and pride and stuff like the French are very well versed in, in that behavior. And so they knew they had to kind of give a nod of supremacy to George Washington to make this work. But they absolutely did not give a nod of supremacy to the Second Continental Congress. This, you know, this assembly of politicians, like what do they have to do with the military? And George Washington very much never allows himself any to go anywhere even near. I'm the commander in chief of the army. I am probably the single most powerful person on this continent at this moment. And I answer to the Second Continental Congress. I'm not calling my own shots here and I will never do anything different. And this is, if it, to bring Lafayette back into it, that Lafayette is right there with him during these moments. When he's seeing, in, in Lafayette's own mind, maybe to finish the war, we should make George Washington dictator. Maybe he should have political power commensurate with his military power because they were having difficulty raising money. They were having difficulty raising troops. They couldn't get their they couldn't get their soldiers paid. So why shouldn't maybe George Washington be able to just order these things be done and then have them be done? And Washington said, no, no republic and no Republican army can possibly function if the supreme commander in chief is behaving that way. That's how we move into a military dictatorship and not into a deliberative republic, which Washington was aiming for. You know, that Washington had a lot. There was there's a lot wrong with George Washington. There's a lot of other things that are really good about Washington in terms of his relationship with political power. And this is, you know, Lafayette is literally in the tent and in the room with him while these decisions are being made, while he's seeing somebody uh, deny himself that kind of power that was right there for him for the taking. And that really becomes a guiding light to Lafayette for the rest of his life. Oh, it does, especially during the subsequent revolutions. He really understands that. What is truly amazing about Lafayette's life is that he really is on the front seat of so many phenomenal moments of history turning moments from that moment to we'll discuss about the revolution, the revolutions afterwards. But this is a, a man that had an incredible life, an incredible opportunity to see history formed under his eyes. And he was there repetitively. And that mm -hmm. is kind of miraculous. It's a unique view of the world. And he had truly a unique view of the world. To understand the life of Lafayette is to understand that certain period of history. He has a personal relationship with the principal players of all of this, and he's right there in the middle of all of it. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So he returns back to France. He is now the feted hero. Mm -hmm. He has come back. He is now the conquering hero. He is feted by uh, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. And I believe it was when Voltaire came up with the praise, you know, a hero of two worlds, mm -hmm. of, right? Of And so what does he do? He dives into the French Revolution for better or for worse. But he was a key player in the French Revolution. And I did not realize how much influence he had in the day-to-day -day machinations of the French Revolution, of course, until he goes to prison. Of course, until he gets, you know, thrown out the other side, of course. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and honestly, like, this is part of what draws me to Lafayette you know, in the Revolutions podcast, I did a whole series on the American Revolution. Lafayette shows up and I know to pay attention to him because I know he's going to come back for the French Revolution. But if you just take sort of like a standard issue telling of the French Revolution, you know, Lafayette is there as kind of a French noble. You know, he was leader of the National Guard, but then ultimately he wasn't that big of a deal. He wasn't that important because events overtake him and wrote people like Robespierre and Danton and Marat, like the real giants of the French Revolution overtake him. And but my reading of what was going on in 1786 and 87 and 89 and 90 and 91, like Lafayette is 
it very much immersed in all of this and winds up being honestly one of the most potentially powerful and certainly influential and famous figures in the French Revolution for like three years. It was not just a short period of time. It wasn't just for a few weeks in 1789 that he was important. It was it was literally years. He's number one. He's come back, as you say, as a great hero of American independence. So he has this sort of fame and cachet and celebrity that goes along with the vast pile of riches that he is sitting on. And he turns himself into a social reformer and a political reformer and an economic reformer. He sees everything that needs to be fixed about France in the 1780s and dives headlong into a major reform movement. Then when it starts to run into an intransigent and a resistant and a reactionary set of entrenched powers, wherever they might be, because Lafayette is somebody who's trying to reform things, the people who don't want things reformed are pushing back. And that tension, that conflict explodes for a variety of reasons that would take 10 hours to really describe in detail, explodes into the French Revolution. And then when the chaos breaks out in Paris, right, the fall of the Bastille in July of 1789, the leaders of Paris are asking themselves, who on earth can we trust to lead a citizen militia that will be able to both defend liberty and maintain order? And there was only one one person they could think of, and that's Lafayette, because he embodied everything. He had a, a sort of a, the experience as a soldier, but was also a known popular reformer who had a lot of, of cachet out in the streets. And they give it to him. And it's mostly him for like two years in Paris. And I would contend <laughs> Europe is still very much under the influence of Lafayette because of his Declaration of Rights, which mm-hmm. that eventually became the Declaration of Human Rights that is now upheld by the European Union, by the United Nations. This was sort of, in many ways, formed the backbone of what millions of Europeans are living under now. And it was from this nine points that Lafayette wrote in during the French Revolution called the Declaration of Rights that he had taken from the American Revolution. He's the first person to present a draft of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen on July 11th, 1789. And so Lafayette was very clear. He's not like I am. I've invented these things like I, you know, like I'm I'm a great genius who who now has suddenly discovered that all men are created equal or all people are created equal. So he's, he's taking this from the ideas that are current in France. And then, of course, what has just been ratified back in the United States in 1789 is the Constitution. And then, of course, Thomas Jefferson is sitting right there as the ambassador of the United States to France. And so he's got Jefferson uh, giving the whole thing like an editorial polish because Jefferson's a better writer than Lafayette is. But he's the one who presents this, which then, as you said, the Declaration of the Rights of Man is a statement which then is uh, the people in the National Assembly add clauses and, and delete a few things and change it. It is ratified on August 26th, 1789, is the statement of principles that we get out of the French Revolution. If there's any one thing that the French Revolution bequeathed to the world, I think it is the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which they themselves believed was the great statement of revolutionary principles, which then, as you say, becomes the foundation of a global sense of what human rights are as opposed to just national rights. So this is something that does have its origin point in Lafayette. And then, of course, like symbolically, he invented the tricolor. You know, like that, 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 like that that's so not, cool. that's not a small thing. Yeah, right? like I didn't The know French that. national colors are because Lafayette was like sitting around in a room designing uniforms and was like, well, let's take the white of the bourbon and the red and the blue of the city of Paris, which had been sort of used as a, as a symbol of the Parisians. Uh, let's combine these things. Let's make it the blue, white, and red. And so the tricolor comes out of Lafayette's sketchbook, essentially. That's amazing. I lived in France for four years, had no idea. Yeah, they don't talk. That. They don't talk about it. I, I lived for three years in France, um, and the French, I don't think, give Lafayette the credit he deserves, even for their own history. I have a t- I, I tell people that I think that uh, we Americans do have a tendency to sort of overrate Lafayette, just in the sense that, like, we like the guy. He was nothing but but good for us. He had a he had a more mixed record in France, but I do think that the French have a tendency to severely underrate him for a variety of reasons I experienced while I was there too. Yeah, interesting. I know I, I recently brought Lafayette up to some conservative French and they did not like his Freemasonry record. And this is what it is, that what happens to Lafayette is he's going through the French Revolution as this sort of liberal noble reformer who's trying to have a Bill of Rights, but also have a constitutional monarchy. And this absolutely runs him afoul of both 
traditional conservatives, also conservative Catholic. He's very pro-freedom of religion. He's he's very much in favor of Protestant toleration, uh, rights for the Jews, like all of these things, which runs him afoul of traditional French Catholicism. But then at the same time, he doesn't want to go all the way towards a full-on egalitarian republic because he thinks that that would move too far too fast and the, the, the system wouldn't be able to handle it. So now he's now both the left and the right not just in his own day, but as you said, all the way to the future, right? Right now in the 21st century, you talk to conservative French thinkers, writers, politicians, and they're going to be like, that Lafayette, he was nothing but trouble. You know, he, you know, he helped start a revolution that maybe wasn't even a good idea to begin with. He's a Freemason. He's an eight, like all of that stuff. Then if you go to talk to sort of socialists or anybody on the left, they're going to be like that Lafayette, you know, he was, he was in league with Marie Antoinette and Louis the 16th. He was, he betrayed the revolution, right? All that stuff. So he doesn't really have anybody, anybody currently in the intellectual or political milieu of France who are, are really to sort of stand up and defend him because he ran afoul of both sides. And that's how sure. he winds up getting kicked out of the French Revolution. And that's also sort of how he winds up getting kicked out of French history entirely. Interesting. He has a woman in his life, Adrienne, his mm-hmm. wife, who very much remained in the shadows. I have an affinity for Adrienne because she was a army wife. I'm also mm-hmm. an army mm-hmm. wife. Mm-hmm. It did, and- yeah. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Maybe you felt some of the things that were going on. <laughs> going on. But yeah. she also – so he goes to prison in Olmutz for his revolutionary activity. And what does she do? She joins him in prison. Mm-hmm. And they spend how much time in prison together? Three years in prison? I, th- I think if you actually added up the months, it was probably something like 24 or 25 months. It was the, it was like the last two years of his confinement they spent together, him, Adrienne, and, um, and their two daughters. And she dies as a result of really kind of being in prison from the illness. And she dies at a very early age at 47. And I I think Lafayette at that time was only 49 and he Mm -hmm. never remarried. I think there's a real story with Adrian that is yet to be told. I'd love to hear that story. I too have an affinity for Adrian and I brought her, I did not try to just be like, you don't matter to this story because I'm I'm ultimately I'm telling a story from very what you would call in sort of like literature a close third person telling of this story where we're always sort of hovering right over Lafayette's shoulder wherever he goes. Adrian was incredibly important to Lafayette, incredibly important component of his life. Was his partner in many ways through his reform movements, right? Once once he comes back, <laughs> once he abandons her pregnant and holding their child, right? Which is not something that I, you know, let pass without being like, come on, man. (laughs) Um, But he did it. And then she was consoled. And, you know, your husband's trying to do great things. And, you know, you should take that as a good thing, not a bad thing, whatever. Uh, She was very, you know, it it broke her heart, you know, because she really loved him. He does come back. And when they and when he enters this reform movement, he wants to participate in. She's right there by his side, right? She's right there for product. She's a devout Catholic, who is very much in favor of Protestant toleration. She joins him in his abolitionist efforts. And when they when they buy the plantation, which I talk about in the book, as an experiment in emancipation, she's the one who's mostly doing the day-to-day management of all of this, right? Lafayette is off now doing other things. She's the one who's in charge of it. When it comes to the actual like bookkeeping of the family, or actually keeping the household running, she is running the financial picture. She's running the economic picture. And is they are remarkable in this, in the sense that in in high aristocratic French society, marriages are like basically like landed alliances. You know, you get married, you don't get married for love. You find love with your mistress or with your lover. You find, you know, the continuation of your dynastic property in the actual legal marriage that you are, um, that you're going to be joined in. And there, it was an arranged marriage between these two, between Lafayette and Adrienne. It was an arranged marriage, but they came to actually like, like and love each other which was remarkable. And so it was nice to like, you know, there's a, there's a great line that I found from Abigail Adams who would, who would come around for dinner when John Adams was over there as a, as a diplomat and she's writing home. She's like, this is crazy. Like, I really like Adrienne. This is crazy. She's a French woman. She actually likes her husband. I've, I've never met such a creature. I've never met such a creature in, in like all my days. And so, yeah. And Adrienne is, is devoutly loyal to him and supports him even as his activities ultimately wind up contributing to the ruin of their family 
And then, yes, she goes off and is tries relentlessly to get him out of prison. And when she can't get him out of prison, she asks, she's li- literally standing in front of the Holy Roman Empire being like, free my husband. And he's like, well, I can't. I cut a deal with the Prussians that I'm not allowed right, to. Right. And she's like, well, that's ridiculous. Just give him to me. She's like, nothing is simpler than giving a wife her husband. Like, what do you do? This is not actually complicated. Uh, and then when he says I can't do it, then she goes off and lives with him. And I think part of the story of Lafayette is that in the early days, he is just kind of a French dude who thinks of his wife as somebody who's like cool, but all, but he's got mistresses, right? He's He maintains a string of mistresses because he's a French aristocrat, and that's what he's supposed to do according to the rules of French society. There is a great understory of him coming to like look at Adrienne like over and over again and realize what an asset she is, how much she loves him, how much ultimately he loves her. And truly what a great, you know, he really lucked into having a great wife in a way that it took him a while to appreciate, but he does get there in the end. And then when she dies, he promises to never remarry and and never does. It never does. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. a great story. And then is buried next to her. You know, he's he's not in the Pantheon, you know, he's not, he's not often in some fancy cemetery someplace. He's married next to, he's buried next to his wife in a private cemetery in Picpus. James Monroe invites him to come to the United States in 1824 to 1825. And this is actually a momentous moment, not just for Lafayette, but also for the United States. We had just had a very, very tough election. We mm-hmm. uh, People thought the last election was tough. It was milk toast compared to the 1824 election where you had four, four <laughs> presidential con- candidates. You had, I think, the House of Representatives eventually decided upon the presidency. Mm-hmm. And you had a nation very divided, mm-hmm. very acrimonious. But they kind of come together over their rock star hero, Lafayette. Mm -hmm. And it is party town for a year. Uh, There's party and fat after fat after fat. Yeah, it's really fun. And like you said, the election of 1824 was one of the most contentious presidential elections in history. It's it's Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay and William Crawford is the other one. He's kind of like you know, the fourth beetle of that election. You know, he's, he's, I think William, William Crawford is the Ringo. But anyway, we, and we do oftentimes Americans have this sense of our own political history as, as being something that was always kind of like noble and we just worked t- together to solve our issues. And that it's only lately that things have become very partisan and very acrimonious and really like the, the partisan acrimony has been much more of a regular feature of American history than than I think a lot of people these days have a tendency to understand. And so right. the country was tearing itself apart in 1824 over this election. It pitted the Western states against the Eastern states, the Northern states against the Southern states, cities against countryside. There was a lot of real hostility that was going on out there. And one of the people they run into, you know, when Lafayette is going on this tour, he basically makes a decision to visit every single one of, I think it was 30 states that were in existence at that time in 1824 and 1825. And along the way, like they met partisans of Andrew Jackson who were threatening to take up arms if their man did not win the presidency. This is is sort of the level of political acrimony that is current. Lafayette is above all of this. Every party, every faction, every city, every town, every state views Lafayette as somebody who belongs also to them. Lafayette belongs to everybody in the United States, and it's a role that he loved to play because he believed that the United States ought to be a single unified thing that for all of its faults as a nation did represent some kind of progress in terms of political evolution and social evolution. And he is him of being some of being naive about a lot of this stuff, but he believed that the systems, the functions, and the people were in place to, for example, ultimately abolish slavery. He thought that the United States would be able to achieve that even without a civil war. Ultimately, it took a civil war to abolish slavery. But Lafayette was, when he's traveling around in the 1820s, believes that America as an institution is already sort of pushing slavery to the background and to the sidelines and to ultimately um, let it go and abolish it. He's wrong about that. But that's what he thought. And so when he goes around, he portrays himself and reminds everybody, look, you might be from Boston and you might be from Savannah, Georgia, and somebody might be from uh, uh, from Lexington, Kentucky, but you're all a part of the same national project. And you should not forget that because if you forget that you're all a part of the same 
a national project, which I, as a young man, came to the United States and shed my blood on the noble fields of Brandywine, like all these sort of speeches they get told. He reminds all of these people that they are, in fact, a a part of the same system, mostly pushing in in the same direction. You know, whether you're a Jacksonian or an anti-Jacksonian, you know, they would all sit at this, like when Lafayette would show up, all these guys who were ready to like stick long knives into each other's ribs. If Lafayette shows up for a banquet, they're all sitting around the table and they're all raising toasts to the same guy. We need a Lafayette now. We could use one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know who that person who is. Who would that um, be? I, my hometown of Mobile had a party for Lafayette that they're still talking about to this day. It must have been a heck of a party. So I mean, there are plaques up. Like, like there's, there's a whole movement that we're about to do uh, the 200th anniversary of this tour, right? Because it was 1824, 1825. So just in a few years, we're going to have, we're going to be at the 200th anniversary. And there's a small organization that's putting up sort of historical markers for all of this stuff. You know, I think the other thing that is uh, missed about this, like, why was it such a big deal? And it's because Lafayette didn't just come and do like the standard, like he goes uh, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and then head home. That's what he was planning on doing. But his tour, he's a world, he's world famous. And he's like in the sticks out in St. Louis. He's in, he's in random hamlets in like Illinois, which at that point is, you know, is just the frontier of the United States. To have somebody that big of a deal come through your hometown does leave a historical memory that I think people, people sort of forget how big of a deal he was when he came and also how small of a deal, for example, something like St. Louis was at that time. And it's the Lafayette Trail Organization run by Julian Ishay, a young Frenchman who is putting up the markers. Mm -hmm. All right. After all this research you've done with Lafayette, what is your impression of the man? Or have you just kind of told us your impression of the man? If you met Lafayette today, what would your impression be of this man? My sort of uh, distilled take on Lafayette is that he was a good man who was trying to do good things and he mostly succeeded which is to me some he's unique in that way to somebody like me i have spent a lot of time doing roman history and high roman politics i have spent a lot of time studying revolutions right which involves a lot of sort of capital g capital m great men right, right. caesar napoleon robespierre and when you Lenin, I'm I'm doing a series on the Russian Revolution right now. I'm talking about Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky. These are gigantic figures in world history. If you're going to achieve something like great man status on the world stage, you are often quite a rotten human being. There's a lot of sociopathy that feeds into that kind of ambition and drive. There's a lot of psychopathy that involves. I mean, Caesar Caesar committed genocide in Gaul when he was conquering when he was conquering Gaul. A lot of the greatness is not like you're a great person or a great human being or even somebody that we should be trying to emulate or copy. They're quite terrible individuals. Lafayette was not any of those things. And and if we can call this back to sort of like his relationship with Washington and self-abnegation, Lafayette was not somebody who was deeply power hungry. He wanted to change things for the better. He wanted to be influential. Yes, he wanted to be fa- He loved it when people cheered his name. You know, he, was, he did have a certain vanity that he was well aware of, but he didn't have that sort of ruthless killer instinct that will allow, that would have allowed him to do the really terrible things that you need to do in order to achieve truly uh, momentous historical levels of power. He just didn't have that in him, which makes him a good man, but not a great man. And I think it makes him that much more appealing as a human being. I would much rather hang out with Lafayette than most of the other sort of like great figures in history because he was a decent guy who loved his wife and loved his kids and tried to uh, see the world and make it better. Even when it was as uncomfortable as something like slavery, which was uh, deeply entrenched, even amongst his closest friends. And he would tell them like, we have, we have to do something about this. We, we do have to emancipate the slaves. These are the kinds of things that he is trying to accomplish. So he's, he's not a great man. He's a good man. And I think that that's a really cool thing. And you know something, sometimes a good man is good enough. So. I, yep. Good man he, was good, good he was good enough for me. It was fun to write about him. I got, I'm got i sick of writing about terrible people. It was nice to write about like a n- nice person for a change. I, 
I'm so glad to hear that. That really, uh, that is such a relief to hear that you think he was a good man. And because, and it comes through in your writing. It really does. This, to my listeners, this is a great biography. It's a great biographical writing. It is a novel. It is, Lafayette's life was a novel, but how Mr. Duncan expresses his life and writes about his life is just so, so readable. So I really recommend everybody to go get this book, Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution, and it's published by Public Affairs. Let me ask you one last question. Readers can buy this anywhere. They can Mm -hmm. buy it on what we call Amazon, our digital masters. But Mm -hmm. your preference, where would you prefer readers go buy this book? Oh, I would very much prefer that you go to whatever your local independent bookstore is and buy the book from that local independent bookstore. They are everywhere. They are. There's definitely one within a few miles of your house. And all you got to do is uh, is Google it and find out who it is if you don't have a favorite bookstore already and uh, and buy the book from them. And the thing that was, I, I did this as, this is as part of the campaign for, for launching the book. The book has now wound up on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm very gratified by that. But there is another list that's published by the American Booksellers Association that is just independent bookstores. And we were number one on that list when the book came out. So this is what I want. Like the book is, it's a new hardcover piece of nonfiction. It's 25, it's 25, 30 bucks to buy this book. I want every single one of those sales to be rung up by somebody in your local community at your local bookstore, as opposed to just the entity that shall not be named. (laughs) Okay. That we all use, we all use them. I mean, we all it's like use maybe them. maybe we could try to not use them for this. <laughs> we all use yeah. them. I know. Support your local bookstores, or if you don't, or or also, you know, like uh, I'm a huge proponent of libraries. You know, like go, fine, go check it out from your local library, or ask your local library to uh, to acquire the book and bring it in. You know, like I'm a big supporter of local libraries. Oh, that's great. And that's another great place to do it. I that's spend a lot of time at the American Library in Paris. You know, like, ah, very uh, like, good, like, very good. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of libraries as well. Uh, you're the first author that has mentioned libraries, so very good. We would really like to thank you, especially for spending so much time, but sure. I really want to thank you for writing this fabulous book, and I thank cannot you. recommend it highly enough. And any sequels, any uh, any future people out there you're thinking about? Oh, there's many, many people. I have I have a half joke that I should write a hero of two worlds trilogy because there's also Tadeusz Kuczko, who was a Polish revolutionary who also gets saddled with the with the nickname hero of two worlds because he was served in the Continental Army and was also a great Polish revolutionary and European revolutionary. And then you move forward a little bit and there's another hero of two worlds who's Garibaldi who ah. fought in in, Span- in South American right. revolutions uh, down in like Uruguay and Paraguay and then comes back and obviously is running around Italy trying to free, uh, uh, trying to achieve Risorgimento in Italy. So there's actually, there's like, uh, there's two other great historical figures who are also called the Hero of Two Worlds. And I'm thinking about Hero of Two Worlds 2, Kachusko, Hero of Two Worlds 3, Garibaldi. That, that'd, be, that'd be a fun thing, you know, just like over the next four decades that I <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> well, Mr. Duncan, we really thank you. Thank you so much. This has thank been you very a much. fabulous interview. It really has been. Thank you. You've been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle Macklin. You can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Michelle Macklin one Thank you so much. God bless.